Sometimes Jesus is really confusing. In the last half of our gospel passage this morning, Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 45, Jesus has some strong emotional reactions, and they're hard to reconcile. In verse 41, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to look there. Mark chapter 1, verse 41. Jesus is filled with compassion over this guy and his devastating disease that's caused him to be ostracized from his community. And that makes sense. That's something that we can really resonate with. A leper was a victim, a victim of far more than a skin disease. At this point in time, in this particular culture, leprosy robbed you of your health, obviously. And there was no cure. Being diagnosed with leprosy was sort of like you um, being diagnosed with interminable uh, brain cancer. Or did I use the word right? Okay. It, it It was a death sentence. So you can imagine the emotion that you feel when you've, or someone you love has been diagnosed with some sort of Incurable. So, so that, that's what this was. Uh, leprosy, it was incurable and being diagnosed with it was a sentence of death. But, but, but there's more to it. Because it was not only deadly, it was also contagious. Because of the contagious nature of the disease, it also robbed you of your place in society. Because while the community couldn't cure leprosy, it could protect itself from catching it, from being around people who had it. And the way you did that was you removed them from the community. So, as a result, leprosy not only robbed you of your health, it also robbed you of your name. When you walked into a a place, you had to shout out leper. You were no longer Joe or Mark or Cindy. You were now... The, lep- the one with leprosy, which quickly gets shortened to leper. Robbed of your name, robbed of your occupation, robbed of your habits, your family, your fellowship, your worshiping community. So we, we get verse 41. We, we like this about Jesus, moved with pity. We like that. He stretched out his hand and he touched someone who was untouchable. We can relate to that. I mean, how many of us, right? We've seen a person who's profoundly marginalized, victimized, hurting, suffering. And inside of us, there's a visceral reaction. But then you get verse 43. So confusing. Here's another strong emotion. But this one is baffling. Jesus sternly charged him. Literally snorting. Nostrils flaring. It's the Greek word based on a Hebrew word for anger. That, now that, that's confusing, isn't it? And then it says, he sent him away at once. And that word in, in Greek, the original language here, sent away. It's the same word as back in verse 25 and 34 for when Jesus sent away demons. And then in verse 44, as if those two things aren't commu- confusing enough... Then suddenly in verse 44, Jesus commands the guy to silence. Say nothing to anyone. 
Now, as powerfully and deeply as Jesus was affected by compassion, he's equally powerfully and authoritative and emotionally in charge of sending the leper packing and commanding him to silence. But there's something even more confusing than these kind of clashing emotions, and it's this whole issue of secrecy. Why on earth doesn't Jesus want the news about healing the leper to get out. If Jesus was going around teaching and preaching about the good news of the kingdom, surely more publicity was a good thing. Surely the word getting out was what he was after. He had just told his disciples who said, let's, let's stay in a town where word's getting out. No, I've got to go to other towns. Surely the implication is word needs to get out. Well... The answer to this strange command to secrecy seems to lie in what Jesus told the leper to do, not in what he told him not to do. Don't tell anybody, but instead, you see, he tells the leper to do something very particular. The sort of disease he had, like I described earlier, this disease was highly infectious and highly feared. That's why lepers had to live outside the towns in special colonies. Now, one of the jobs of the priest in the temple, one of their jobs was that they helped to protect the community, not only from moral threats, but from physical threats. Now, this is hard for us because we don't live in that kind of culture. But all you've got to do is take a bit of world history and notice these kinds of cultures where religion is a part of the public square. To know how this is a logical place for the priestly caste. Only in, in our secular moment where religion has been pushed to private morality and limited to that. Only to us does this sound strange, but let's not be so ethnocentric. Let's lift our thoughts up to other ways society organize themselves. And we recognize that priests often played a role that was far more all-encompassing than just your morality. And in this culture, it's one of them. The job of the priest in the temple in Jerusalem is to help protect the community. And one of the ways they did this was by checking out people who claimed to be free of infectious diseases. Somebody had to do that. Right? Now the priest did that. To make sure they actually were free of infectious diseases. And to give them, in effect, a clean bill of health. So that the community who formally isolated them would now reintegrate them. Part of the, what's going on here is that for most of time, for most of history, in most cultures, our physical lives were deeply connected to our spiritual lives. That's why it makes sense to locate both diseases and morality in the same office. Now, here's the point. Jesus had a deep respect for the Jewish law. The laws of the Old Testament, where all the procedure for identifying and dealing with leprosy are found. Several chapters in the book of Leviticus. But notice, Jesus is treading some dangerous ground. He's doing temple work. The guy did not ask him in verse 40, if you will heal me. What did he ask him in verse 40? If you will make me clean, do temple work with me. 
Not only heal me, but do more than that. Clean me so that I can reintegrate. Restore me, not only physically, but spiritually and socially. And Jesus said a very dangerous thing in response. I can and I will. I can do temple work. Even when I'm not at the temple. Now, this was a dangerous claim. You see, Jesus is not just doing healing. He's restoring people all the way around. So the issue isn't just if word gets out, he won't be able to move around because of the massive crowds that will end up surrounding him. Well, that is what happens, but that's not the main issue. The main issue is that people will misunderstand Jesus. Now, remember the first half of our gospel reading? Jesus, he's off praying by himself. When the disciples track him down and tell him, hey, everybody back in Capernaum's looking for you. You're killing it, Jesus. I mean, like metaphorically speaking, in the positive sense, in the, in the modern lingo. Jesus, these miracles, your great teaching, it's working. They can't get enough. Now, the language here is very nuanced. The original Greek in verse 36. And Simon and those who were, who, were search, who were with him searched for Jesus. That's an anemic translation. Simon and company literally pursued Jesus. Also translated, hunted. Hunted Jesus. Now then in verse 37, everyone is looking for you. Again, sissy translation. The language, it's far more nuanced. It's deceptive. The Greek word behind looking for it occurs only 10 times in Mark's gospel. And in every occurrence, it's negative. Everyone. The first two occurrences describe people who are interfering with Jesus. Obstructing his ministry. The second two occurrences describe people of disbelief and faithlessness. In the last six occurrences, every one of them, people attempting to kill Jesus. Now, when you're reading this like good literature, those ten things add up to something. This is a thick word whose meaning is determined, like all words, by its context. Not its etymology and not a dictionary. You see, the disciples are hunting. When you add up these two words, right? Pursuing Jesus as emissaries of the crowds who are determined to control Jesus. Not to submit to him. Not to follow him. You see, don't confuse enthusiasm with faith. It can actually be the opposite. And this is the point. And it's so important. important. I I, I don't... I grew up with a speech impediment. My R's, I would say Boyd and Twee and my first girlfriend, Sherwell. Um, and after eight years of speech, finally somewhere in junior high, I, I straightened it out and periodically it comes back. So there we have it. It's so important for us to see this. Jesus's message was hard to understand. Now, a lot of you right now should just say, I'm so glad I'm not the only one. And it's not just the religious and the political leaders. It's not just the crowds. It's even his own disciples. By the way, in Luke's 
um, version of this account. He doesn't name Simon Peter. He just says the disciples. But Mark is very careful to show us. The other time it's Simon and others. It's when Simon tells Jesus that he's wrong about dying. What is Mark saying to us? Even the followers of Jesus. Jesus' message is hard. It's hard to understand. It's hard to, to wrap your mind around. Why? Because it's complex like calculus? Yes, but more important than that. More than that, the key issue is that the dominant cultural conception of God and God's kingdom and what God was up to was so focused on social and political liberation from Rome... And the establishment of a free and independent Jewish state and peace and prosperity for God's people over against all the other nations. This was so ingrained in Jesus' disciples, so ingrained in the crowd, so ingrained in the religious and political leaders. That over and over again, when Jesus comes along and uses words that they've been using, they take his message and slot it into their preconceived idea. Now that's a very natural human phenomenon. So Jesus comes along and he's talking about God and God's kingdom. And everybody is constantly distorting his message by taking the words he's using that they've been using and thinking that when he says God, he means the same thing they mean by God. And when he says kingdom, he means what they've always meant by kingdom. But like I said several weeks ago, of all the wild things God has ever created, he is the wildest. He is the most unexpected. And this happens over and over in the Gospels. Jesus is constantly portrayed as saying things that even his family and his friends don't understand. Why don't they understand it? Because of the strong pressure of their plausibility system. Of their preconceived ideas. This is the secrecy issue. Jesus is just getting started in his ministry. And he needs to teach over and over and over and over. Uh, Who was the famous uh, dictionary writer? Uh, Who? Oh, before him. Oh, the British guy. Johnson. He said the most important factor in teaching is repeating. Oh, that was a long digression. But just to say, repeat. Why is Jesus biding time? Because if the message gets out that he's doing temple stuff, the temple will crush him. Which, by the way, those of you who've read the story, the death knell in his monkey trial was he said he would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. This is exactly what he's doing. He is replacing the temple. But before that gets out, he needs three years to help break people's preconceived ideas. Now, what was it that Jesus was teaching and doing that was so hard to understand? We'll go back to Mark chapter 1 verse 14. After John's arrest, Jesus came into Galilee announcing good news. The time is fulfilled. God's kingdom is arriving. Turn back and believe in the good news. That's it. There it is, right there. The one true God has now taken charge of the world in and through Jesus. The ancient hopes have all been fulfilled, but in a way nobody imagined. God's plan to put the world right has finally been launched. He's grasped the world in a new way to sort it out and to fill it with his glory and with justice, just like he always promised to do. 
The ancient sickness of this world that has crippled the whole world and humans with it, it has been cured at long last so that new life can rise up in his place. Now that is the good news. That's the good news that he announced. The good news is that the kingdom has arrived. Now the Bible calls this the gospel. And let me just say, a lot of us have preconceived ideas that make that a very difficult thing to understand. Here in the church over the last couple of centuries, we've so truncated the gospel to various theological code words like justification by faith or getting saved or going to heaven. All of those very important, massively important. But they find their meaning within the gospel. They are not sufficient for the whole of the gospel. All of those, that's how you get into the kingdom. Definitely justification by faith, forgiveness of your sins, repenting, humbling yourself before God. Hugely important. But here, right here, out of Jesus' own mouth is the good news of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Let me just say, if that is hard to wrap your mind around, that's okay. It's normal. Just because something is true doesn't mean it's simplistic. And don't be so arrogant to say if something's hard to understand, then it can't be true. This is hard for us to wrap our minds around because just like Jesus' family and friends and the religious leaders and the political leaders and even his disciples, we've got preconceived ideas supported by very sophisticated publishing houses and systems of belief about what's plausible. Supported by huge infrastructures called universities and governments about what's plausible. And if we're not careful, these unrecognized and unacknowledged preconceptions will turn God into an idol, a tame puppet that we can invoke to get our own way. So just like the first hearers of Jesus, we too need to let Jesus reshape our notions. And if Jesus was walking around in flesh and it took him three years, then it's okay if it's taking you a very long time. This takes time. It takes humility and submission and willingness to listen. Now, over the weeks and months ahead, as a church, we're going to continue to turn our gaze to God himself. To God as we see him revealed in Jesus through the pages of Mark's gospel. So we've got this wonderful opportunity to hear Jesus' teaching time and time again. And to discover that the gospels are not the prelude to the gospel. They are the gospel. And if we let him, just like he did with the disciples, he'll teach us. He'll open our eyes to the glory of who God is. The one God. The stunningly generous creator of all things. The source of all delight. All daylight. All that is lovely and lively and liberating. This is the true God. The supremely wise ruler. And the guide of the nations, the God who makes promises and keeps them. He's the Lord of the angels. He's the utterly faithful and utterly loving God. And like I said before, love like you just can't imagine. Just grace to the core of his being. 
And this love, it is as broad and as great as humankind itself. It is as high and as deep as our misery. And it is more powerful than death. And this God has done something in and through Jesus to renew and restore creation. The kingdom has arrived. you know what that means? It means the king has finally come back and taken control of this world. And there's something about Jesus that says that's what happened. That's the gospel. The gospel is not advice. It's not a moral system. Advice, good. Moral system, good. All of that is good. The gospel is good news. What's the news event? The God has re-entered and retaken hold of his world. And in Jesus done something that has changed everything. Now that's the good news. Now I want that. I want that in my life. Justification by faith, repentance, all of that stuff comes in there. But the remarkable news is there is a creator. And in Jesus he has kept his ancient promises and has done something that has opened the door to new creation. Now, once again, this God has taken charge of our world in and through Jesus. And the ancient hopes that we saw this fall as we, as we taught through the life of Abraham, they've been fulfilled. But in a way nobody saw coming. And could I say, in a way that our culture doesn't prepare us to see coming. Both our American culture and our evangelical culture. See, what I'm saying is that God's plan to put the world right has finally been launched. He has grasped the world in a new way. And we need to hear that message again and again and again. Now, that's a lot to take in, whether you're religious or not. I mean, there's enormous questions, right? Okay, so if that's what Christianity says is good news, then a big question is, is it actually true? Did it actually happen? Question for another time. But that is the news event. Now, this stuff is hard. It's complicated. And the disciples, they don't get it. Right? They're cast as ones hunting Jesus. Emissaries of a crowd that are resisting Jesus. But you know what? You keep reading the gospel. And by the end of it, guess what? They do get it. And so can we. So can you. But there's one more thing to see. Critical to getting it. Critical to really grasping what the gospel is and the kingdom is. And being grasped by it. Is prayer. It was critical for Jesus. And so it is for us. Did you notice where our passage started? Behind all of Jesus' public actions, his teachings, his miracles, behind all of the controversy, behind all of this lay Jesus' total dependence on the one he called Abba. The intimate term, Father. Now this was Jesus' habit. Total dependence through his prayer life on the one He calls father. Look at Mark 1 verse 35. And rising very early in the morning. While it was still dark. He departed. And went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And now once again. The language is far more nuanced. Than first quick read will allow. The details of the language are so important. You see where he went to pray. 
a desolate place. It's the same word as wilderness or desert. And the attentive reader will recognize there's repetition here. Even though we're still in the first chapter, we've already encountered this word wilderness four times. This is the fifth occurrence. Only a few verses into the gospel. And now this word's been used the fifth time. In verse 3, we learn of Isaiah's voice of one crying in the wilderness. Then in verse 4, we see John the Baptist appearing in the wilderness. And then in verses 12 and 13, in the brief account of Jesus' temptation, twice we're told that his temptation occurred in the wilderness. So by the time we get to our passage this morning in verse 35, the wilderness has become a technical, literary, and theological term. It's a suitcase that's been filled with meaning. It's a place where momentous and decisive events occur. It is a place where the holy and the demonic vie for power. It is the place of temptation about Jesus' vocation. So if we're paying attention when we read that Jesus got up very early and while it was still dark and he went out to the, to the wilderness to pray, when we read this, we don't think of this as some quiet time, as a tranquil and careful spiritual oasis, as, as a logo for a retreat. I mean, who wants to go to the place of temptation, vying with the demonic for power? Let's go do that as a church. <laughs> no. To the contrary, the author has posted all the signs along the way to alert us to the critical character and the danger of this place. This is the arena of temptation. The place where decisions of vocation and repentance have to be made. The arena of the decision between the call of God and the sirens of destruction. And sure enough, while Jesus is in that place praying... The tempter comes. But it's not Satan like, uh, oh, brother, where are there with a bifurcated tail? You know, in a red suit on. It's Peter. Hunting. Searching. Everyone is searching for you. Everyone wants you back in Capernaum. By the time you've read the chapter, you've got to know when those words come out, because all the languages set it up, it's Satan. It's temptation. It's a very tense moment. And the question of the attentive reader's mind is, what's he going to do? Is, this is a powerful moment of temptation. Where is he going to go? Everyone wants him back. Will he allow the way Isaiah proclaimed to be changed from a straight path to a cul-de-sac? And then in verse 38 comes the answer. Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. That is why I came out. You see, this is a statement of vocation. This is purpose. Or to put it theologically, let us go to the cross Instead of back to Capernaum. The crisis has been faced. The temptation has been met. And Jesus has remained faithful to his difficult calling. So this is not about the virtues of prayer moments. In the quiet garden. 
before breakfast. Now this is about prayer in the wilderness. Prayer when the chips are down, when the temptations are fierce, when the possibility of bailing or wearing us out. When the temptation is so attractive to go the easy road. This is about discovering true life through the narrow path of repentance, self-abandonment, and faith in the God revealed in Jesus Christ. So this is about giving yourself over to God. This is about becoming most fully your true self by abandoning yourself. It's difficult stuff. This God who we pray to in these moments. It is about abandoning ourselves to the true God. Who like I said earlier is the source of life. And who will receive you and me as true sons and true daughters. As the new family he is creating in and for his only true son, Jesus Christ. Why are we so foolish? (laughs) Why do we resist relinquishing control to the God who is the source of life and love and liberation? (laughs) Oh, that we would learn to seek this God when the chips are down. And may we call on God, the true God. Who will receive us as his sons and daughters. Because you know why he receives us as his sons and daughters? Because he allowed pagans and religious leader lunatics and the maddened crowds to treat his son as if he wasn't his son. As if he was a criminal. Did you notice the story of the leper started with the leper in exile and ended with Jesus in exile? Did you notice that he told him, don't go tell everybody he did. And after that, Jesus has to live in the desolate place. He has to live exiled from community. And isn't that a beautiful foreshadowing of what he ultimately did? He taking on our exile, our pain, our suffering, taking it all on himself. And because he did that, when you and I pray in the moments when the chips are down, the father will accept us. Following Jesus. It can be so difficult. Not only to understand. But to do. May God keep me and you. From the temptation. To doubt the goodness of the father. To doubt that his promise to treat us as his son and daughter is true. Following Jesus will lead you into the wilderness. It will lead you into temptations and trials and the other garden Jesus prayed in. These moments of deep anxiety and suffering and persecution and misunderstanding and being face to face following Jesus. It will take you face to face with the evil powers. Who align themselves against the Lord and his anointed one. So when you are there. When you are face to face with the evil. In the wilderness. In the suffering place. Because we are there by God's design. To do what? To put his ways on display. 
This is one of the deep mysteries. How did Jesus move the kingdom forward? By the way he suffered. How do we move the kingdom forward? Critical to it is not only courage and love and kindness, but it is by the way we suffer. That's the deep magic. The deep mystery. And when we are there, we should remember that the father abandoned Jesus at his darkest moment so that he will never abandon us. Pray. Learn to pray. Learn from Jesus how to pray. I'm not talking about that sissy little stuff sprinkled into the corners of your life. Real prayer. The language of verse 35 about Jesus going out to pray. It is very similar to the language of verse 39 about Jesus going out to preach and cast out demons. What we see is that for Jesus, his work was as much about the inward labor of praying as about the outward work of compassion and healing. Jesus cannot extend himself outward in compassion without first attending to the source of his mission and purpose with the Father. And conversely, his oneness with the Father compels him outward in mission. Here is no monk. This is an active monk. Here is no activist. This is an activist monk. It's a remarkable combination of the inward life and the outward life. To pray, it's to stand between the one true God and his world. To enter into the place where the love of this God and the life of this world and especially the pain of this world, where they somehow are held together. That is prayer in the wilderness. It is fierce. It is a labor. Now learning to pray from Jesus is learning to be utterly humble before God and utterly human in reflecting God to the world. All prayer stands with arms outstretched, which is a deliberate evocation of the cross. Arms outstretched, one to embrace the loving God and the other to embrace the needy world. And that is a painful place. So if we want to become true humans, the kind of people who will be moved like Jesus with, with pity, who will stretch out our hands and touch the wounds of the world with healing compassion. If we want to be the kind of people who are neither hardened by the pain of the world or destroyed by the pain of the world. If we want to be the kind of people who have lives that can, are actually sustained in this impossible intersection then we must always begin in prayer. Prayer is as much our work as our deeds of love and compassion. Our la- it's as much our, our labor as our fighting for justice and truth. 
It's as much our, our calling as beauty is. Prayer is a critical part of the larger vocation in which we humans are supposed to be bringing God's love to bear on his world. And if it doesn't start with prayer, it may well end up being simply a version of our own agendas. Only with prayer at the center will the work of the kingdom go forward. So I say to you, let's pray.